Welcome to episode 22 of the Kevin Doherty podcast. My guest today is Jonathan Morrissey. Jonathan has been a guest on the podcast many times before, and today we chatted about loads of topics, including United v. Arsenal, The Silence of the Lambs, Serial Killers, Kevin Barry, Irish History, and The Impact of Meditation. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you helped spread the word by recommending it to a friend or sharing it on your Instagram stories and tagging me at the Kevin Doherty podcast. As always, thank you for listening. Jonathan Marcy, how are you getting on, buddy? Okay. Kind of chat. How's your Tuesday going? Not bad, man. Not bad. Uh, US elections tomorrow. Could be the end of the world. Either way, who knows? Very strange times. Very strange times, man. Such a, yeah. It's like, to have the options they have, you have basically the same dictator who's, you know, a racist, homophobe, uh, you know, maybe has committed several sexual assaults to continue doing what he's doing. Or you've got, you know, a man who's so old, can't remember where he is half the time. Those being your options. It really uh, is yeah, the classic really douche versus a, a turd sandwich. Yeah, yeah. Like South Park got <laughs> yeah, it spot got on. Got it spot on. Absolutely nailed it, man. Absolutely nailed it. Um, God, the whole season was fantastic. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like in Canada, people are like people are taking the day off work. People are going crazy about that. Today, like there's gonna be still. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. People are like people are like taking the next couple of days off because they find it so stressful. Which shows oh, because of all right. the the political chat, is it? Really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even uh, a lot of companies now where you can't re- you can't talk about polit- politics at all on any kind of forms of communication for the next like forty eight hours. You can't even play top trumps or anything. <laughs> it's, too, it's, no. it's too triggering. Um, I suppose like th- we don't know what the fuck's going to happen. The postal vote probably won't be in for another couple of days, so there's no real point in in talking about it. Um, at the weekend, yeah. it was fantastic to catch up with you and watch. Uh, United and Arsenal. What did you think of oh, that? You want, you, you, you'd rather talk about United <laughs> losing one minute at home to Arsenal. That's, yeah. I wonder why you, you would bring that up instead. Um, man, honestly, like, I don't know if you heard uh, Roy Keane the last, uh, like that, the, the, the day of the game, and then I think afterwards as well. Um, he had a crazy go at Solskjaer. He was like, this, he, was like, he thinks Solskjaer is done now. He's like, this is it. That was like the final straw. Um, He's talking about no leadership in the team, no voice, no bravery. Like he actually went into them and poor old Tim Cattle. I don't know why he was there. Um, but he was uh, in between him and Ray, uh, Jamie Redknapp. Tim is like, Roy, I think you're being a bit harsh there. Roy just fucking ate him. Really? Like, he was like, all right, Tim Cattle. Yeah, you're, you're next then, Tim. Um, <laughs> and had to go at him as well. But I... I see to be a minority. I have a few friends here and back home who are United fans. I think he's. I think things are like really bad, like abysmal. Um, but people still seem to think Ole is the the right man for the job. So I uh, don't know. What about you? You you obviously enjoyed it. Um. Yeah. Like I don't know. Like I I always find it nearly difficult to really grasp what's going on in a match when I'm watching it with somebody. You know, chatting away. Like I don't I don't really see exactly what's happening. But I I rewatched it and like. I thought, I thought Arsenal had a plan 
and thankfully there was like an error like from United for the penalty but they stuck to a plan and it seemed like everybody seemed to know what they were doing whereas watching United in Old Trafford you would have thought that there would have been more of an impetus to try and attack or at least be a little bit more dominant with the ball and especially in the midfield I thought it was really really interesting where like you look at Pogba versus somebody like Thomas Partey who's just coming in Thomas Partey looked very very productive with the ball like a lot of forward passes a lot of interceptions whereas I saw I heard a really like wild stat about um Pogba there today it's like I think in the last 50 or 55 games he scored like four goals and two of those were penalties and the other two were like the third goal in a dominant performance so he's not scoring he's not scoring crucial goals um another thing then as well that I I was kind of thinking is like there was such a huge buzz around Solskjaer when he was temporary manager where he was that sort of interim position and they went on this like ludicrous run but like if you if you start to draw a line in the sand from where like when he when he was like a permanent permanent manager um he has less points than like arsenal during that time arsenal sacked a manager same with chelsea chelsea sacked a manager um same with tottenham tottenham sacked a manager so I don't see where the the pro Ali Gunnar Solskjaer sort of crew is at the moment in terms of like why do they think it's going to change because and one more thing as well um, I read one more thing today and I thought I thought it was a cool little way to kind of frame it it's like United had a tremendous performance during the week like tremendous performance oh yeah mm-hmm. what was it 5-0 yeah. 5-0 against Leipzig yeah and so the way the the way the article is kind of framed was united have a floor to where their performance can go like because of the the quality of the player that they have like the the amount of money that they've spent on that starting 11 but it's nearly it feels like with solskjaer in charge they nearly have a ceiling as to how fantastic they can be on a on a weekly or bi-weekly basis because like with something, somebody like Arteta, Arteta came in with a game plan, and like it wasn't, it wasn't an attractive game to watch. But now Arteta leaves Old Trafford with that monkey off the back of not having won there since what, like two thousand and four, maybe. And like if you're if you're a manager who's all about nearly the process, where it's like we have a plan, we stick to the plan. This is a real marker where you can go. Like as a manager that that's very very process driven, like a Guardiola maybe, you can now point to look what we did at Old Trafford. That's like a nearly like you need those little like if we got hammered four nil at Old Trafford, then there's a lot of um, there's a lot of doubt again. And the one thing that I like the one thing that I, which is wild now that Arteta is in charge is if I look at Arsenal's starting eleven, I'm actually starting to see a genuine quality spine which is so key like Gabriel looks very very good so far and the keeper not a bad keeper Thomas Partey brilliant signing and then you've like Aubameyang three out of those four players are pretty decent and I'd argue your goalkeeper is solid I think Leno is pretty good good, pretty good (laughs) it's like a huge amount of appearances under his belt and like you know, in, in the Bundesliga, especially, 
But uh, yeah, everything you just said is true. But what, the thing that really wraps it up in a nice bow for me is that the game against Arsenal was his hundredth game in, in charge. No way. It was his one hundredth game. Yeah, blew my mind when it was Roy. Roy said it. He was like, "The fact we're sitting here talking about a manager who didn't have a game plan, one hundredth game in charge." That's just not right. Like you can have your off days for sure. But we are saying it's about United on a regular basis, and anyone listening who's into football knows that as well. Um, the reason I think the the Ole camp are still a, like are in the majority is because he is such a, a favorite. Like they love him at the club. Like he he gave United one of their most famous moments in the Champions League, right? So I understand that great goal scoring record, blah blah blah. Also, I think we have these flashes of brilliance, like the PSG game. Both of them, the one last season and recently, 2-1 away, was really, really impressive. But that's exactly why, uh, because of what you said. Because they've got some really world-class players because we spent a crazy amount of money on them. So just by the law of averages, they're going to have flashes of absolute brilliance, whether there's a good plan or not. Um, like A good example of that, I remember, was when George Best went to America. And he, I don't know if it's a book he wrote or a book someone else wrote. And he just basically said he was surrounded by like 10 absolutely below-average football players. Like, no one could play football. Um, there was no plan, no tactics, no nothing. But every now and then, he was able to do something absolutely amazing because it wasn't a plan, and he could win that game because he was incredible. But the higher up you get with the level, and the, the less of a plan you have, the less likely you're going to be able to make that consistent because that's what it is. Like that, That's why Leicester won the league, man. Leicester didn't... They had a couple of now affairs, like Vardy was great and Miraz and, you know, Michael is great in goals. Kante. But... Yeah, Kante was fantastic. But they weren't like world-class players at the time. They were just a really consistent team who had like a decent plan. And it just worked week in and week out. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's what actually I heard really... This isn't even a stat, but our buddy James, uh, we, me and you and James, we actually watched the last time Arsenal together. Arsenal beat United Old Trafford. Can you believe that? It was in UL. Yeah, in the sports bar in UL. Uh, the minute James said it, I went, oh, my God, we did. I'm 99% positive you were there. Um, we played football on the pitches that day. Uh, we were about, I think we were 17, I think James said. Um, oh, I, remember, I, I, I remember just because James just wouldn't shut the fuck up the whole <laughs> way home. Like, Such an uh, ignorant Arsenal fan. Like. It's the worst. Like, he's probably listening to this now. Uh, <laughs> but, like, I, I remember that. I was like, yeah, God, it was that long ago. Um and the coolest point he brought up was, and we just might be stealing this, but uh, uh, Arsenal were one nil up and United were all over Arsenal. Like, it was just like pinging balls into the box again and again and again and again. And then the 89th minute, uh, United forward broke through. Um, it was one on one with Jens Lehmann and Lehmann pulled off like basically a supernatural save. Like if you watch on YouTube, it's just like, I don't know how his arm was able to stretch to touch that. And who was the guy who took the shot? Oh, they got ourselves scared. So it's it's just you talked about our chat earlier about things kind of happening, right? Like that in in a weird way. That's again, it's the reason why people love him because he has this crazy long history of United. Yeah. And if we sack him, in fact, that's actually Tim. And I'll put put this to you, Tim Cahill. Tim Cahill asked two questions of Roy Keane. He was like, "You keep talking about United, who should, who they should sign? Who the fuck would you sign? If you could name two or three players that would actually change the squad, who would you sign? And then second, if Ole goes." Who'd you bring in? Now, people are saying Pochettino. But 
there's rumor that he's not going to be interested at all. Pochettino <laughs> needs a preseason before he goes to United. He <laughs> it looks like he's enjoying his uh, he's enjoying his break. Like fair play to him. The lot, the lot flowing locks, man. He's having, uh, he looks, he looks, he looks wonderful. But like, who would you sign? Like, I, I don't know. I like, I really don't know. And like, I hate the way the the it seems like the only thing that people talk about once there's like a calamity is how many hundreds of millions is it going to take to fucking steer this juggernaut in the right direction again until it goes sideways again? Yeah. Like, it doesn't. Yeah. It, it, it's it, I love when you can get a manager that can actually make players improve like like Klopp at Liverpool over the last few years there are players that have just really really accelerated under his um, leadership and like when you look at let's say United at the weekend either see, like there's two there's two things that you could say you could say either United and both of them are like equally damning it's either United didn't have a real game plan to to try and like outthink Arsenal, or they did, and the players didn't listen. So either way, it it doesn't look good for Ali. Even if he had the best plan ever, and the players didn't respect him enough to carry it out, he's essentially lost the dressing room. And it's tough That's as well great, when you're great. when you're like when you're a club legend, like you like you have it with Lampard at Chelsea, you have it with. Like Arteta is not a legend at at Arsenal. He's not a legend, but he's a well respected, well respected guy. Ole is a legend, and so absolutely, he's like yeah. It's very tough to to take that action, but it doesn't look like it's going to turn around anytime soon. And like, do you remember what I was saying at the weekend as well? It was like the best quote that I've heard. Like, it's brilliant that you were talking about watching the game with James back in the day it's like it's like 15 years ago this game used to decide titles and now it decides Twitter I thought that was brilliant <laughs> it's actually it is it's such a good quote for it. it's actually so sad and it, it makes me realise it is it makes me realise how far away maybe not they both are but United now let's be really realistic they're not going to win a title in five years they're not going to win a Premier League title I just don't see it happening I think you could Klopp did. I think Klopp had been in it for what four years before they won the title. Uh, pretty much. Like I was at his first game yeah. against Tottenham. I went there myself, and it was just terrible. Like it was like Origi started up front, and it was just like, ah, oh, what, what a terrible, terrible game. But to see them go from there to to what they did last season, especially, is just unbelievable. Yeah, and the the reasons are so straightforward. It's been one manager over a period of that time who has brought in players to match a plan. Like, the reason I feel bad for Ali a lot of the time is Ali didn't buy Martial. Ali didn't buy Paul Pogba. Do you know what I mean? But now he has to come up with a, a plan, a framework to make those players work in, you know, his, his plan now. But, like, but he does make some really rookie mistakes. Like, why didn't they play 4 3 3 at the week? You know, they, they play this weird bastardized version of it where he didn't Diamond. really know what was going on. The diamond, which I just hate that word, 2020, like I used to use the diamond in football manager in like 1998 when I would have been picking on a Solskjaer. Uh, but I don't know, because I look at, I look as well at the youth setup um, and like there's been some really good players come through. Like Rashford is quality. Like that, I think that that's, he, he can do it anywhere. I genuinely think he could. Mason Greenwood, uh, Greenwood is fantastic as well. Mm. Um, that might be it. Uh, but no, Scott Matani is, is a great player as well. But the problem is, is that like 
there's just going to be a new manager again now in 18 months who has a different vision and a different approach and likes different players. And he's going to change it all up again. So in a year or two years' time, I'll be sitting here having the same chat with you and it'll be the same thing. And like that's what Keane was trying to say that uh, he was saying that the problem isn't really with the manager. And I agree to that a small bit. He thinks it's with the group of players that have been brought to this club. Um, uh, Tim Cahill was making this point. I'd love to get your opinion on this because I think it's a lot of shite. He was saying that um, when he was a professional football player, he relied on his manager to motivate. That was such an odd thing to hear from someone who's played, you know, at a decent level, you know, with Everton and played in a couple of World Cups. He was like saying that he's the last majority of his career. Yeah, yeah, the the motivator, Uh, and like, yeah, not a lot of jokes. But like, he said he'd be sitting in the in the dressing room. And like looking at the manager, and like if it was manager he wasn't getting on with or they weren't doing well, he would say, like, this guy's motivating me. So I'm gonna go out on the pitch and not be motivated. Kino absolutely hated that. He was like, motivation comes from within. He's like, if you don't want to win the game, if you're not motivated already to give everything you can to get three points that day, it's not up to the manager to convince you otherwise. The manager is there to he was using Ferguson as an example. You'd, you know, you'd feel like you've done it all and you've pushed as hard as you can. Ferguson's there to push you to get that tiny bit more, like to push you over, kind of, you know, into this kind of 110% you can give or, or if things aren't going well, to lift you up, but not to actually actively motivate you. So I think what you said is kind of true. I think it's one or the other. I think he's at our last dressing room and we're not hearing about it, which is a bit jadad. I think you probably, you probably hear a bit more about it or he's just, he's tactically inept or the other option the players are just like just not motivated to play for United anymore. Yeah. Which is actually, I think, the biggest. I think it's the biggest problem. Yeah, I think the question with motivation is a strange one because I think more and more, like in modern football, it's less one special player in the team and it's more a, syst- a systematic approach that will like l- like hopefully uh, let you concede less goals and score more than the opposition. Like it's it's more it's more of a battle plan these days than like one warrior doing everything like like an Henri or a Keane or one of those like just yeah. larger than life characters. Um like with motivation, I suppose as well it's it's a very individual thing in some sense because like let's say with somebody like Tim Cahill, maybe he was that type of player that needs that special bit of confidence from a manager. Do you know, just doesn't have as much self belief as a Ronaldo. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like I think yeah. I think like a modern manager needs to have that combination of the two where you can, you can devise how best to beat your opponent, but you also have that, like when they talk about like Bobby Robson, where he could just, he had everybody in the palm of his hand because of the way he approached everybody uniquely. You need some sort of blend of the two. And like, you're essentially just trying to create the perfect manager. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's very hard to see. And like, it's as well, it's like a fantastic manager can only, can only do as well as how good his pawns are and how good his places on the chessboard are. Like I, 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 it always winds me up a little bit when you hear about, uh, Oh, what's your philosophy? It's like, fuck it. I'm going, I'm going to manage like Bradford. I need fucking, do you know what I mean? Like, there's no philosophy there. Like, like, what what players do I have to work with? I don't know. Let's see. Let's see. Can we eke out a few fucking wins? I don't know. It's, it's yeah, yeah. Oh, we love the the psychological aspect of the game and the tactical part of it's just gone. It's jumped the shark. Like, you know, people yeah. talking about 
you know these are these these teams in like League Three or League Four in Scottish Second League playing you know Guardiola type football. Who cares? Like no one's fucking watching it. So it doesn't matter. Um, but I do agree to you, man. That like, yeah, it probably is individual to each person in regards to motivation, like it is in general life, I guess. How are we not vetting this out at the recruitment stage? Yeah. Like, can you imagine someone like Fred and I? And I'm going to throw our friend, other friend, Mr. White, under the bus here. He said at the weekend that he kind of likes Fred. 50 million, 50 million pounds buys you that. That's shocking. Like, he doesn't fit into this. I don't think he fits into the squad in any way, shape, or form. He's not like a big tackler. He's not breaking up for the play. He, you know, someone compared him to Michael Carrick recently. I hated Michael Carrick for years, I'll be very honest. But as he got older, I started to appreciate what he did a lot more. Just kind of keeping things ticking, like connecting the, you know, the, you know, the center backs right to the up front. He was very, very good at, yes, five yard passes, but he actually was excellent. He had like crazy high, you know, uh, percentage rates of completed passes. Fred doesn't do any of that. I don't know what Fred does. If you ask him to list out three attributes for why he's a good football player, he, he, people are like, well, he's got great stamina. It doesn't mean anything. It's just, you've got great stamina because you're running around the pitch chasing the football, you're not touching. Um, but the sad thing about United is on paper, if you look at the 11, if you were to pick the best players for each position uh, on paper for United, it's not terrible. Like, it should be working. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, Pogba, Pogba was fantastic event. Remember, we were talking about that at the weekend as well. Like, he's like, like the watching. starting 11 Easy. against United was worth over 400 million. And that includes homegrown players as well. So, like, there's, there's a lot of money there. And, like, I suppose right. just going back to the last thing, like, one of the last things you said as well, like, it's hard to see at the moment United winning a title in the next five years. I wouldn't be confident that Arsenal will push for a title in five years. But if you if you imagine that they're both currently on paths, it looks like Arsenal is slowly making steps towards the right direction. And there seems to be nearly like a meandering with United where you think... Because like, they, they could go on a run now for two or three games, play out of their skin, and then it gives a little bit more time. But... You always feel like it's nearly like the old Arsenal. Nearly, you always feel that there's this performance in United, which is a wild thing yeah. to say at home. Yeah, and that that's and like Cahill was talking again about like there not being any fans and that having a huge impact. Like man, if you're at home, it's where you you you, you play you play there so often during the year. It shouldn't matter if there's fans there or not. You should know that pitch like the back of your hand. And like just the fact that I know it sounds kind of lame now, but. Keane was talking about the fact that you actually you're, you're just playing for Man United. You've gotten to a point in your career. It should be the same for Arsenal. You're playing for one of the biggest clubs in the world who has this crazy big history, and you're playing professional football at Old Trafford. What more do you need? Like, what more motivation do you need? But I think the difference, the biggest difference between United and Arsenal is that I don't think either of them are going to win a league title in the next five years. I'll go on record saying that. But I think the difference is that Arsenal don't expect Arteta to do that. Mm. Like the board aren't turning around. Like the Rayer got a really, really harsh time bit at Arsenal. You know what I mean? You really look back and see what he did. Like to be able to finance a stadium of that quality and that big and keep the club hitting the Champions League season after season when money just was introduced because like they started yeah. the stadium and then Chelsea happened. Yeah, and then City a couple of years, a few years later. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like suddenly there was influx of like you know amazing players even clubs that would have been maybe six, seven or eight including Tottenham like their biggest rival were getting really really big name players and he kept doing that and I, I know people are always like oh the board weren't ambitious you know they were tight with money I don't think they were I think they were like you know this is a long term game you know we don't want to become 
like say a Liverpool or something where they just have done a success for like almost 30 years, which is I'm starting to feel United are, as you said, meandering towards that path. Like I don't see how... Is it 2012? That, that's, that's was it 2012 was the last title win for United? 20, was it 2011? 2013. 2013, right. Yeah. City won it in 2012. City won it in 2012. You know, the Aguero! Uh, um, yeah, yeah. That, that goal. Uh, if you don't follow football, you're probably a bit mental now. But uh, <laughs> what I was saying, like, I can see the board behind our header, like, you know, let's get Champions League football back first. Let's start doing that. Let's build up the brand of Arsenal again. Let's start attracting really big names again, um, which they already have started doing. Um, and let's have a, a football, I know it's funny now, so we're going against what we just said. Let's have a football philosophy or plan that we stick to um, and go with that. United is just like, went from Moyes, we went to Van Gaal. I was so excited about Van Gaal. You have no idea. Especially like after just the World Cup, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I was like, if Percy's going to be captain, this is it. Like, yeah. It was just diabolical. Like, I think he won what, one FA Cup. Football was awful to watch because, again, every two or three games, it was like, okay, let's try 4 4 2 today. Okay, let's try 4 5 1. It was just consistently changing. Um, and then Mourinho came in. And I remember just thinking, great, we'll win a couple of trophies for two years and then the club will be an absolute shit, uh, which kind of happened. Um, but I, I think I said through the weekend as well, Mourinho always talks about his greatest achievement being getting United to second place. Because uh, the squad was so weak, top three, like yeah. top three, um, his, his achievements. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I just to answer your question at start, don't feel great about it. Um, uh, and like the weekend was just another, I don't know, a game as you said where we we chatted for most of the game, so I didn't pay too much attention to it, but didn't need to because nothing was happening from United point of view. So I don't know. Should have talked about the election. <laughs> talked about the election. Uh, I suppose moving on um, for Halloween did you get up to anything like I I just watched like what I think is the my all time scary movie The Silence of the Lambs I, I, I remember you told me I felt jealous it's like we should have watched that uh, we uh, we watched the movie The Secret of the Shining uh, Doctor Sleep um, didn't do much like there was weird thing about Candyman or all in particular is that there was a rumor going around that we were going to be opening up bars again and restaurants. Uh, now it is actually happening this Saturday, but the uh, Saturday gone that was Halloween, it hadn't happened. So it was still like full lockdown, stay at home, don't go trick or treating, like don't have parties, like don't be an idiot. Everyone had parties and everyone went trick or treating. So like we, well, we actually the door, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like the biggest Scrooge ever here. Um, I'd fixed the doorbell that day because the doorbell was broken and I took the batteries out because I was like, I don't want anyone knocking on my door. I don't want to hear them. Um, but yeah, there was trick-or-treaters around. There was, uh, like I got, I think I told you, I got invited to a couple of parties that people were having. And now the opening is supposed to be happening this Saturday. It's like, well, actually we have to wait and see what the results are now from tests uh, at the weekend because a bunch of people went to the hospital saying they might be showing symptoms and stuff like that. So. Nice. Um, but yeah, man, Science of Lambs is, I would argue, I would argue a top five. I put it up there with Goodfellas. That's what I think. Yeah. Top five, could be a top five movie of all time. I think just in, in terms of like definitely like unsettling, like just there's something so terrifying about that film. Like it, it it's definitely up there. And, and like it's not a film like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly or Goodfellas that you can just stick on and go, Do you know what? I'll just, I'll fucking, I'll enjoy myself tonight. <laughs> It's like science of lambs. You're fucking, 
you're double bolting the doors. You're just like it. It's terrifying. Like Anthony Hopkins' performance in it is so chilling, and it he's on screen for such a little amount of time. Yeah, such a little yeah, amount yeah, of time, yeah. and yeah. like the killer in it, Buffalo Bill. It, there's something so maniacal about him, and like I was doing my impersonation at the at the weekend. Like his, this voice yeah. in it is just so unsettling. It's like, uh, was she a great big fat lady? Would you? It's just there's something about him. Like in that scene where it's like one o'clock in the morning, and he has the night vision goggles on, and he sees your one coming back home, and she's about to go into his her house, and he's like lugging a couch. Into a van at one o'clock in the morning with a broken arm. As you do. And you're yeah. like, As don't, you do, don't do. go over. Don't yeah. be a nice person. Don't. Ah! Oh, man. I knew that impersonation was coming, but it still got me. <laughs> uh, the, the reason I think it's so scary is because it's just so fucking believable, man. Yeah. Like, you were, as you were telling me to begin, I didn't know Bundy. That's what he used to Putting on a fake cast, I went. I went into a, an awful deep rabbit hole after you told me that. I know, on Wikipedia yeah. for hours. Because, because, like for ye- for for a long time before they understood what was happening, there there was such a confusion over like, uh, Bundy used to like prey on like college students a lot, and there was a lot of um like missing persons where a girl would leave one dormitory and she might have two blocks to walk across campus and she'd never arrive. And they'd be like, what the fuck is going on here? Like what could happen in that short space of time? And what Bundy used to do, because Bundy was like a very, very attractive guy as well. Like looks like a very, very like harmless guy. I don't know what, what harmless is anymore when you see Ted Bundy, but (laughs) he used to wear like a, a broken, broken arm cast. I think it was, he'd be carrying books and as soon as they were walking past, he'd fumble. And like, there was definitely a little bit of the silence of the lambs in it. That's why it's so eerie because oh, yeah. it just like an innocent, nice person would look at Bundy and go, oh yeah, no, I'll definitely help you towards your car. And then when he gets there, he just does the exact same thing he does to everybody. Man, speaking of rabbit holes, fucking, I shouldn't have done it last night because uh, I did not sleep well. <laughs> have you ever looked into um, the Yorkshire Ripper? Peter oh, Sutcliffe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, what dragged yeah, yeah. me in, like I was listening to some podcast and they mentioned his name and I was like, I don't think I know a lot about that. And I went into Wikipedia and I was just reading a couple of lines. And the reason I had to watch a documentary on it was, so like with Sutcliffe, one of the, the strangest things about his whole period of, um, of murders was that the West Yorkshire police handled it terribly. They interviewed him nine times during the five years and like there was so many different times where like I think I think like so let's say I think it was like 75 to 80 when like his period of time when he was he was really active and one year within a year before his first victim like the first murder and there were at least there was at least one report of somebody being hit by a hammer and uh they described him perfectly so there was a perfect um what do you call it? Like an artist's uh, depiction of, like of Sutcliffe. Sketch, uh, yeah. The sketch yeah. artist or whatever. Like, so so they, artist, yeah. so they had like like uh, an accurate depiction of what Sutcliffe looked like. Uh, you had one of the weapons that he used, but the victim was, was, was not killed. She was just attacked with a hammer. And when Sutcliffe started killing, 
um, the Yorkshire Police, one of the, the strange things that they did was they straight away just looked at the fact that, oh, he's killing sex workers. Like, he's killing prostitutes. He's not killing what they called normal women. And, like, the documentary was fascinating because of, like, the blatant misogyny, man. I couldn't believe it. Like, the interviews were so fascinating. Like, um, like there was, like, maybe four or five prostitutes killed at this stage. And one of the police officers comes on and he's like, uh, I don't know what they're doing. Like, we've, we've told them to move out of the area and they're still, they're still going on the streets. The fools, like... like 100 percent exactly like it's not like it's a luxurious life being a a sex worker in fucking west yorkshire yeah exactly and as well like the way that the the way they talk about it the whole time they were like uh oh yeah he was he was killing sex workers and uh normal women and it was like what why aren't they normal women so bizarre wow and uh, and they'd use like innocent women and then prostitutes like there was always this sort of division it was it was so bizarre to watch because as well at the end of it when Sutcliffe was actually apprehended, he went with nearly the insanity plea initially, and he was like, "I was in a graveyard, and God told me to kill prostitutes." And there was nearly a consensus, like, "Oh, that's a reasonable thing." Like a lot of people were like, "Maybe he is crazy. Maybe he did hear that because like that was an acceptable thing to think at the time." It's fucked up, man. And like with that case as well, there were so many. I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but one of the things that really led them astray was uh, these letters that came from a guy that called himself Wearside Jack, who was from Sunderland, and he was like mimicking the writing of Jack the Ripper. Like there was a couple of little quotes in it where, uh, if you've ever like looked at the original Ripper letters, there's like a quote where it says, "Had me in fits of laughter," and he copied that little bit. So it's like it was like very very. Um, like nearly like a, an homage to what the Ripper was writing yeah. about, even in terms of like the the amount of victims at the time when Jack the Ripper wrote that letter. And then um, a couple of years later, Wearside Jack uh, sent in a recording of himself. So then immediately the, the, the head of police was like, right, we're looking for somebody with either like essentially like a Geordie accent, like a North yeah. Northeast accent, which is like two, two hours up the road by car from Bradford and Leeds where Sutcliffe was operating. Um, yeah. there were so many. So like, that was one thing where they, they invested so much time in this completely false lead. And then at the same time, they ignored survivors that was like, uh, this is his drawing like the amount of like similar drawings of Sutcliffe that came out and it was like they disregarded all of those because they were in their words normal women and they only got attacked by a hammer he attacks with a hammer and a knife it's like no they fucking got away you idiot and then there was other things man where at one stage he paid a prostitute like a fresh five pound note and the banks were able to track that down to essentially the company he worked for. So there was like 250 possible people that it could have been. And then they just went, I ah, know that's not getting us anywhere. And they, they put that to the side. Then there was another one where his tracks, uh, like tire tracks were at two different uh, murder scenes. And again, they narrowed it down to a point where they had went through 80% of the people that had that type of tire track. And they went, ah, oh, no, it's a waste of time again. Like there were so many times where they just 
they'd be going up the right road and then they'd have this all of a sudden oh no it has to be this fella in Sunderland now so let's completely pull it off and then Sutcliffe he wasn't even caught like in the sense that like it wasn't like incredible detective work it was just some random I think rookie out in one of his first nights in patrol and the the officer with him was like uh like have you ever done have you ever like um like apprehended a prostitute or like prostitution in general he's like no and he's like right let's let's go to a place where there will probably be prostitutes and they just stumbled across Sutcliffe's car he was in with a prostitute and they found his whole killing kit in it and that was it and then when they got into the station he just admitted to everything so it wasn't incredible police work it was just nine times they interviewed him nine times I can't believe that it's so because like that was the thing I was like I have to know more about this because like you hear about the Yorkshire Ripper so much and you're like oh my god he must have been this like diabolical genius and like oh my god all these victims that's crazy and these many survived and then it's just so much negative like I can't believe that he was talked to nine times and he's not he doesn't even seem like a a sane character you know what I mean Uh, it's I know I think you were being generous like you know hindsight yeah is you know you can look back and say, oh, if we've done this or done that, sure. But the amount, you know, because it's going to sound really weird to say a sentence out loud. I, I am, me and Steph, my partner, are very fascinated about serial killers. I mean, first t- t- talk, talk to somebody it, who isn't. Like, people, yeah, true, what, yeah. what do you do? I like long walks and fucking serial killers. People, like, <laughs> well, if you look actually, at, like, the most popular podcast, it's all murder shit. You look at the most popular it Netflix, is, yeah. it's all murder shit. It's actually so true, because it was one of the first things we talked about in our first date. It was literally one of the first things we talked about, <laughs> but um, which is messed up. But back to the the prostitute thing, I, I think it was in the it was a documentary called the the Ted Bundy tapes. You know, he did a bunch of when he was leading up to his execution. One of the things he talked about in, in fairly in depth was one of the reasons he focused on prostitutes was because for some reason society had just dehumanized them already. That he knew he could kill more and more and more and more of them without kicking up a big fuss. Like to him, there were people. But he knew to law enforcement and generally in society that you're not going to get, you know, you wouldn't even their name wouldn't even be used half the time. You know, prostitutes killed here or wherever, as opposed to, you know, a teacher or a lawyer or a doctor, you know, someone whose society would, would, would respect. Usually, so, usually the outrage comes when somebody from the middle classes is killed. And then it's like, all right, this this has to stop now. Stop it now, yeah. Well, as <laughs> he's already killed, you know, 20 sex workers. Why didn't we get involved then? But, like, man, there's so many. Like, look at Bundy, even. Bundy went to court over, what was it, 11 murders? Um, and they they met him already something like 15 times he'd been investigated. He'd been investigating for years, and he was still killing people, still killing um, What's his name? Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, well-known as well, where <laughs> he had a guy in his house who escaped, found two police officers, Right. This is this to me is one of the most shocking. He found two police officers within the area while Dahmer had gone out to like buy more stuff or more tools or whatever fucked up shit he was doing. Went to his two police officers um, and explained the whole story, but he was intoxicated because Dahmer had drugged him and he was black. So what did the police do? And it's literally in Wikipedia. They drove him back. What? They drove him back, back to the address, back to the address he talked he talked about, and Dahmer killed him. It's it's one of the most it's like it's horrendous to me. It's shocking. Um, and me and Steph were talking about that how insane that was, how crazy that was. That same police officer became the chief of police within w- within that police department and was in the news 
uh, was it two, a year ago or two years ago um, for sweeping a bunch of uh, you know assaults under the carpet with other police officers? He didn't, he didn't lose his job, mm. cost the person their life, and, and so that one really got to me because Dahmer is like so messed up, and again very very like subtle. If they knew uh, he was so well known within the the gay community in particular as this really weird dude who don't go to his house, don't respond to his messages, stare tear of him. Um, and then Son of Sam is kind of like uh, Sutcliffe as well. Remember Son of Sam? I don't was, know a lot about that one. Over. Was it in the 70s? Uh, yeah. 70s or 80s, I think, yeah. Around the time where they were all seem to be going wild. But he's the guy, he's the guy who's the postal worker. Um, uh, but he, they found him because I think it was he, put, he was pulled over for uh, like a, a taillight that was out. And the officer who was invested in the car asked him to pop the trunk. And again, he found a hole. One in a million. They were nowhere close to him at all, from what I can understand, if I remember right. Um, but they popped his trunk again, same thing, just like a, a killer kit, just in the in the trunk. Wild stuff. But let me let me just say one quick story about this because yeah, yeah. I don't have too much information on the serial killer. But um, I used to live in a place in Toronto called Cabbage Town. Um, it was kind of it would have been kind of the gay community of Toronto, like the villages and around there. Uh, and it's also a very Irish part of town. It's where Irish immigrants weirdly enough, landed in Toronto, and it, that's why it got the name Cabbage Town. I don't know why we were growing cabbages, thought potatoes were our thing. Maybe someone <laughs> changed it because I thought that was a bit, a bit rude to call it Potato Town. But living there, really, really nice place. I actually loved it. Lived there for like two years. Um, really nice. Moved to Ottawa. About six months in Ottawa, uh, news came out that they'd arrested this guy who'd killed, I think, six gay men um, in Toronto. A uh, guy in his, like, his late 50s, bald dude, really unassuming looking guy, um, who was a gardener. It's true now, you can Google after, like, I'm sorry I don't know his name. If I'd known we were talking about serial killers, I would have done my research. Um, but uh, we lived, and this is no word of a lie, we lived probably, I'd say within three minutes of his house. Um, and it's at the time, Steph worked at a restaurant called Hey Lucy, and uh, I worked at a place called Ransted, and this guy lived literally bang in the middle of those two workplaces. Oh. I have walked past that house and I'm not being, I'm just making this up now and I can back it up. I've walked maybe a hundred times. Possibly because I would finish work and Steph would be at work, go up and hang out to the end of your shift. I was walking directly past and he's a house that was on, like on the street. Um, my parents came to visit, went up to the restaurant a half dozen probably uh, two weeks, passed this place all the time. But how they caught him is where it gets like really crazy and you start to realize that science lens isn't actually that much of a stretch regards to what they talk about he was meeting people online on something like tinder or, or grinder um luring guys back to the house killing them um in awful ways chopping them up and then when he was gardening he was fertilizer or, body parts. or burying them oh yeah. my gosh but he he was doing a mixture because he obviously because i know where he lived and he didn't have like, quite a small little house um in, in an area that's really banged downtown so it's not kind of thing where you can kind of, you know, pop a body in the car even or something. You know, it would just be very hard to be discreet. Yeah. Um, literally, one of the people he did the gardening for said, oh, hey, 911, I found, I found what I think could be a body part in my garden. I have no idea where it's come from, what's going on. Um, and by the time this came out to the, the media, they'd like, they had it all figured out. They'd like, they'd known about it for a while. He hadn't uh, committed another crime in the meantime because they'd been following him for ages. So it just shows that they, they did the right way. They, they really followed up that. Now that that was a big lead in fairness to the body part. So I think it was something like a foot or a hand. Um, but man, it creeped me and Steph out for to this day, man. Yeah. 
And I, I'm thankfully not, uh, you know, in regards to what he was doing, I'm not part of the demographic he was aiming at. But even then, man, I remember saying to Steph, like, why isn't this on, like, every news channel ever? And Steph was like, it might be because he was killing gaming. Like, again, a minority he was aiming for. Um, and I remember being in the news, they were talking about, like, if this had been, you know, straight white men or straight white women, it might be different. It might be even a bigger thing, which it should have been. But again, because they're a part of society that still somehow um, some people don't, you know, look at equally, it, it was kind of seen that way. But, dude, it, it creeped me out for for fucking months, like months, that there was a dude within spitting distance yeah, lowering you, people you over each other. Yeah, you could have walked past them innumerable amount of times. Like, like that's the scary thing with somebody like, uh, like Bundy especially. Like, uh, when you saw Bundy in court... It, it was like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Do you know what I mean? He just looked so normal. He looked so clean-cut American, so articulate. I think he was like... Charismatic. A charismatic man. Like, just yeah. good... Like, seemed to be, like, what women would want. You know what I mean? Dude, Zach, Zach Efron played him in the movie last year. Yeah. Think about that. Think about that. You're a serial killer, and a guy who's, you know, considered a, you know, a heartthrob, whatever, in Hollywood, is the guy who's picked to play you. It's it, it bears belief, man, with him. And like his, I won't talk about numbers because that sounds weird, but it is one of the things when you're going down the deep hole, you're kind of like, well, how many people did he kill? Yeah. His numbers were just off to like, what, 40 or 50 people, I think he killed. Was that, was that high? Yeah. The only, it's, so, fu- it's so fucked up to know about this shit, but I think one of the only ones that tops him is your man, uh, was it the Green River Killer, Ridgeway? Gary Ridgeway? Oh yeah, oh man. There's a whole bunch we could talk about that I wouldn't want to talk about. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's one of those things as well. It's like it's such a fucked up rabbit hole to go down. And like I very, very rarely look at this stuff anymore. But there's a there's such an odd fascination with us. Thought it's nearly like you need to know what's out there. You need to understand that evil exists. And like it's nearly like the idea of. Like, why is the the tale of, like, the werewolf so popular? Like, the werewolf is a normal person in our midst that's a monster. And you don't know until the monster reveals itself. It's fucked up, man. Well, I remember my dad told me thing when I was younger that always messed me up. Um, he used to go out to a lot of R- uh, RTAs, like road traffic accidents with the fire brigade. Um, he said, if, if it was on the highway, on the side of the road, at, like, at a busy time of the day, my dad would say, out of 100 cars that passed, you know, say the wreckage and, you know, maybe someone in the car, someone hurt badly. My dad would say 99 out of 100 would slow down and would open the window or look out. Just pure, morbid curiosity. Because think about it, if you're in the car, you're not going to see, if, if you see a wrecked car inside the, the road, you're, you're going to look. Morbid curiosity will, will you know, will, will get the better of you. You're not looking over there to see, you know, a really nice, happy scene. You're not, you're not, re- you know, maybe there is a part of you looking over to hope that they're okay and hope no one's been hurt, but people do it because they want to see something really messed up because it's the story to tell, yeah, or it's just in us this weird kind of morbid curiosity. Um, I think it's a negativity yeah, bias I, as well, where like that's why the news is so attractive. It's like from an evolutionary perspective, you need to know what's, what's a danger around you, so like that's why the news is so addictive to so many people. And like if there is or if there are killers out there, like it's just. You need to at least realize that that is a thing. It was meant like I, I remember uh, like even like through the meditation I've been doing recently, it kind of talking a lot about uh, uh, scanning. So as humans, through you know 
thousands and thousands of years, we've been trained to scan for threats mm. because, you know, when we were you know, first on the planet, you know, is there a fucking tiger over there? Is there, you know, a, a lion or something or another human? So we were trained to continuously scan for things that's built into our DNA. And then as obviously we've gotten, you know, more developed, more civilized, don't need to do that scanning, but mm. we still do it. So it's kind of this, it's this kind, of, this kind of, as you said, this negativity that we that sells papers, that sells the news in a big, big way. Which it's just built into us to want to know about that stuff. Um, man, I'm the same as you. I know stuff about serial killers. I don't really want to know. Exactly. Like yeah. I've gone down like Wikipedia. It's stuff that you can't then, unlearn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's been things I, I wish I actually. Here's the thing. This is this is like the only time it got to me too much. Um, there's been two museums I've been to in my life. That I had to leave early. That genuinely got to me so much. Um, one was uh, the the World Trade Center Museum in New York for obvious reasons. Like very very heavy, obviously super sad what happened, and it's just very. It's a huge museum, so it's really kind of you really feel for people who died, and it's tough. So I remember I was with Steph, and I was like, we had like a half hour to go, and I was like, look, I, I just you know let's just go. And she's like, yeah, she's like, oh, this is awful. The place we had to leave after 10 minutes, and um, I, I need to think of the name, but you can Google it quickly. I wish we did Jamie. We did Jamie on, on this podcast. Um, <laughs> was a place in Las Vegas. I think it was, sorry, it was in LA. We went to Vegas and LA. Um, it was like the museum. It's like a museum of serial killers or the museum of museum of murder, I think it was called. Ironically, it was Steph's mom who recommended it to us. She'd never been, but she's like, hey, like you guys, I love watching those documentaries. Uh, making a murder had just come out. Remember that big Netflix show that yeah. really took off? So we went, all right, okay, we'll go there. I, could, I, I think we genuinely did 20 minutes and then we left and went for a drink and like we talked for like a couple of hours. It was an actual museum dedicated to the different serial killers who have existed in the States. So there was like memorabilia, there was photos, there was a, uh, which is, and like it was packed. Like it was, there was probably 100, maybe 150 people there. But what got to me was, uh, there was two parts that really, I, got, I actually got like, physically upset and like, physically ill, which has never happened to me because you kind of think at our age we're fairly desensitized yeah, to violence because of the movies and video games. Exactly, right? You haven't, you haven't seen anything. Um, there was a hall, it was called the Hall of Car Crashes, and we walked down and it was just hundreds of photos and left. None of the serial killers at all. Um, both walls were just covered in, in photos from traffic accidents. It was awful. It was just, I saw, I don't have any interest in being here. This isn't this is a museum. You know what I mean? This is like a weird fetish thing. I hate this. So like walk past that and step like. get it. Exactly. And so I was like, this is there's people stopping and staring at me taking photos. I was like, what the fuck is wrong with people? And then we got to the next uh, area and it was your man, uh, I'm forgetting his name, a serial killer who was a clown. Uh oh fuck it, I know it. Yeah, his name's on it's like on the tip of my tongue, like, and I can't uh can't uh can't think of it right now but um he uh, he uh, he killed kids he buried all his he buried all his like i think 40 or 50 kids that he killed under his um his floorboards and in, in his crawl space um there was a photo of the crawl space um oh. amongst all his right so amongst all his artwork so he he was he famously painted clowns john wayne really gacy creepy that's it. Good man. I just had to. Um, do you know? Do you know when you're trying, yeah, like, you're trying head. to pay attention, but you're just something in your head. You're just like, I, unless he says the name, I'm not going to take anything <laughs> until I know the name. You know what I mean? No, yeah, yeah I'm glad you. I'm glad, no, I'm so glad you did that because it, it is actually such a recognizable name. 
yeah. the three, the kind of the triple three barrel, barrel name. Yeah, yeah, it's they're rare, man. When you hear them, it's usually for a bad fucking reason. Um, but anyway, as I was saying, it was like all his artwork. He he painted uh, pictures of clowns, and then amongst this was because I was looking at the artwork. And I was like, hey, this is kind of a bit more interesting now. It's like more psychological. Why is he painting clowns? And then just mixed into it was uh, like a photo album of uh, the the crawl space they found. And I was like, man, what like what is wrong with society? Now I went, and I paid money to go see it. Mm. Um, but what is wrong with society where we there's think a glorification? Just, like, yeah, there's a there's a blatant absolutely. glorification, and it's it's the it's nearly the exact same argument where you know, like when uh, people commit terrorist attacks in the U.S. and they're like, there's this argument that you shouldn't even release their name because you're 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 glorifying it and you're you're just yeah. waiting for the next copycat. Like that yeah. seems that doesn't seem to apply to the massive industry that is serial killings like serial killings is a fucking industry like it is man and it's it seems to be i know like the amount i've read about they always seem to be driven by something that's so deeply psychologically wrong it's like why do you blame it on like i think i think there's a reason why there's more serial killers per capita in the United States of America than there is anywhere else in the world. It's not, not to do with guns it's, or yeah, anything. It's like it's that. not even um comparable to anywhere else. Like it's it's, it's, it's ludicrous. Yeah. yeah. It's something like yeah, I think it's like, like I, it might be it might be over eighty percent of the world's serial killers are are in the States. I think that's the stat that I read last time, but that's just fucking pulling out of my ears. That's but that's but no but it, it but it sounds so believable, you know what I mean? Because like I would struggle now to name one. You know, besides maybe the Ripper, you know, both the Rippers in, uh, in England. But yeah. and England is kind of like England, let's be honest, is the America of Europe anyway. So that's no fucking surprise yeah. that that'd be second. Um, but yeah, like, was, has there ever been an Irish serial killer? I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure, I'm sure there has, but yeah. I, I can't even, I can't, like, see, that's the thing as well. Like, we're so fascinated by, like, American culture. Like, how the fuck did I start off the podcast? Uh, presidential election that, that like it, it's not our country yeah. neither of us lived there it's not like I'm talking to one of the lads in the States neither of us lived there no. but America drives the culture and it's like I, I even definitely growing up like I was very very oblivious to a lot of the stuff that was happening in Irish society but I was focused I knew what was happening in the States like just because that's where you're getting your, your media from and, and all that um, I wonder if you got if you got 10 or 20 Irish people uh, just got put them in a room and ask them all to name the Secretary of State for Ireland or whatever, because they name the same in, in America. Bet you more more than the name for America than could for Ireland. Absolutely. And I mean, like I, and living in Canada, I don't know. What's it, I actually don't know. Is it worse in Canada than it was in Ireland? Because I think Ireland is really driven by American culture. Like the TV we watch, the music we listen to. Like, and it's weird because Ireland is, has such a strong culture as a country. Canada doesn't. Canada has a very junior. Mm. very recent culture but I actually don't feel they're as driven by the states as they are back home because in Canada they just laugh at them yeah I, but like, I, I think you know? I think Canada probably has that thing that a lot of Irish people have with England as well they want to separate themselves from the noisy neighbour a little bit yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's actually probably a really good way of looking at it yeah but man yeah I, I don't know like there's I read a book about about a year ago um, uh, on the the Manson killings, just speaking of, and I, I won't keep talking about this and depressing everyone, but um, it, I, I'm, it's called, the book's called Helter Skelter. Um, 
It's by a guy called Charles Butlowski, I think his name is. Um, but he was the lead prosecuting attorney on the case. Um, yeah, like that actually put away most of the Manson family. He, he actually got them tried and convicted um, and sentenced to death. But uh, eight months later, the death penalty was reversed in California. Um, so none of them were put to death, which is really fascinating as well. But that book, man, so it was like, I remember I'd be reading it in bed and then I would just put it down. It's definitely like, what's wrong with you? It's like, I actually can't finish this book. Like, like I, it's really fascinating. But every now and then there's words and passages that are so dark, so messed up about what these people did. That I have to put it to the side. Like, I just, yeah. it's, it's wild, man. It, 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 you, that's why I always be careful. Like, because you go down the rabbit hole, but it, it can affect you a bit. Like, it can kind of really get you upset. I, I think the same as anything it's like you're like if you're eating shitty food you will feel shitty if you're constantly taking in fucking grim things it 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 it's like a different lens on how you see the world and you don't want that fucking lens it's too fucked exactly, up like, yeah. it's way too fucked up and i haven't it, like this was the first time in ages i, I remember i got I, I got a little bit obsessed when i was like 2021 20, and i watched like everything yeah. everything i could because that's the way i do everything just. <laughs> and then i i remember i did that for a month and i went what did i do that to myself for i was like i can't do that yeah. anymore. that is just way too what the what did i think i was gonna get out of that like and yeah, yeah. dipping in last night the fascination is there but it's just you come away and you're just like oh god who can i even fucking talk to about this like this is just way too unsettling like you, you feel like, yeah, that's it. You can, can you talk to him about it? Like, yeah, and why would you? <laughs> why exactly. would you ever bring it up to anyone? You know, but um, but I do think you, you are right in saying we were saying that it is still important to know. Yeah. Like, th- there's uh, humans can be so fucking cruel and so dark and so messed up to other people. So I think if you don't know that, then, do, you know, you, you'll help Ted Bundy with, with his books. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if I ever had kids, I don't know if I'd ever even want to have kids. I want to bring them into this world. Like, you know, the world, everything is so, so dark and so messed up here. Um, and like, even like even things have changed so dramatically since me and you were growing up. Like, yeah. And I remember the amount of times I'd walk. I think we're the last place. generation to play outside. Just yeah. like, like oh, latch door man. keys, That's... like fucking, you can, you can leave in the morning, you'll be back in seven or eight hours. It's fine. That doesn't seem to exist anymore. Yeah. No, it, it does not at all. Like it's, it's a 32 year old woman. She's absolutely fine. But she's telling me she's walking back from somewhere. I know it's a slightly sketchy neighborhood or someone's not great with it. Or like it's a, I just, she's on her own and it's dark out. I just now associate being on your own, a woman on her own, the dark. You know too much. You know too much. It's too prevalent in your mind because that's what you consume as well for a while. So it's so a part of your world that it might, it's, it's such a small minority of people that it happens to, but in your frame of mind, it's like fucking run, Steph, run. (laughs) Zigzag. They're like alligators. They can only move forward. (laughs) Stay away away from anyone who's who's had an arm injury in the last 24, 48 hours. But that's why Science Lens is so good, Kev. Yeah. Because, it's just so believable. Yeah. And like, I, I wonder, I wonder, would you enjoy the movie if you'd never heard of what a serial killer is? If you never knew what the term was, I wonder, would you go into that movie and be more scared or less scared? Good question. Um, see, the thing was, as well, though, like with, with something like Science of the Lambs, I remember, uh, it went, like when I was 
so young that I was too young to watch those films. I had heard of Silence of the Lambs and I, I used to get my dad to tell me about it because there was this, there seems to be this natural inclination to know about those things when you, once you realise they exist, there seems to be something in you that you're like, it's a weird, deep fascination. And it like, the, there's two things as well, like about, about serial killers. Like, one thing is like, is there something that's inherently evil about the person or are they a victim of like how they've been raised and like the insane things that happened to them in their, in their childhoods. Like that's one thing to kind of consider, but also like with something like psychopathy, like psychopathy is essentially uh, devoid of uh, empathy really, isn't it? That's like one of the big things with psychopathy. And then I think, I think being a sociopath is somebody who actually like they have that trait, but then they, act out in terms Do of violence. Anyway. like there's there's a violent yeah. aspect to sociopaths so i think it's exactly. something like not all psychopaths are sociopaths but all sociopaths are psychopaths and like it's really weird that in like modern society uh if you're part of a big corporation like if you look at the people who climb corporate ladders there's uh, an incentive in a way to be somebody who lacks empathy because you have to make a lot of decisions that affect way more people than you than you could ever know personally so to make those big decisions in like a capitalist society in a sense psychopathy is uh incentivized whereas we look at um anxiety and depression and people who don't fit into that system as that's that's the illness here but you never you never see um a person who is devoid of empathy being stopped at a certain level because because of that does that make sense it does and it, and i wonder why don't like is it is it that character trait in someone but they're acting out in a different way do you know what i mean like is or is there someone as evil as ted bundy working at apple right now <laughs> but he's just showing his lack of empathy in a completely different way and just doesn't and maybe are you right maybe it's kind of maybe it's a class thing like i remember with uh, with Sutcliffe was it Sutcliffe i think it was or maybe it wasn't was it was, was Sutcliffe did he commit murders in Leeds was it Leeds uh, that kind of area? Leeds Bradford, Bradford. Uh, like all okay. that kind of West Yorkshire Okay, I, I, my English geography is poor but like I remember them talking a lot about it being uh class-based that uh he resorted to violence due to the fact that because he's from a lower class family he had a harder and tougher upbringing um which is probably you know you look at someone uh like jeffrey dahmer who's the outlier from that if we were to, if we were to say that was an actual say uh a theory right that you know it's about class it's about you know if you're being brought up well maybe you'll carry out these kind of yeah you, know, you could be uh, you could be socialized that, even if even if you're exactly. devoid of certain key characteristics like key uh, characteristics that humans value. Exactly. But then you look at like someone like Dahmer, who Jeffrey Dahmer f- famously said uh, several times he had a really, really nice upbringing. Mm. He had a really, really happy home. Uh, his mother and father, it was like, it was the equivalent of me or you being outed as a, uh, like a serial killer. Like a normal family, especially from the outside, educated. Uh, I think he had a brother or sister. Parents were in love. They, they were still together when he, he was kind of outed. Um, so is he, because he, because he famously goes against a lot of the tropes of what they say, you know, serial killers do. And see, um, that's the, that's you know. the fucked up thing because we'd love to be able to put these people in a box and yeah. I, either, either it is 
it is the fact that they've had this horrendous upbringing or there is some inherent genetic thing that we could term evil but then there's the, evil the, yeah. but the outliers but we don't like is, that. Yeah, exactly yeah, we, we, don't we don't like we, that we don't like that because it's, it's not comfortable it's just yeah. not a comfortable thing right um, and that's why Anthony Hopkins is, as Hannibal is so perfect he's super successful he's a therapist massive house super articulate smarter than the FBI agent who's been sent to you know kind of track him down and that's why I think he's the outlier because you're like he probably had, like he couldn't have gotten to where he is today without having a normal upbringing, or having you know uh, being wealthy and having all those things at his, his disposal. So that's what he's he is so interesting. Um, man, I I, could, I literally we could literally talk about this for days. Like we haven't even talked about Zodiac yet. Zodiac to me is the most by far the most fascinating serial killer of all time. I don't know a lot about that one. Do we delve into it or do no. we leave it for another episode? That's the question. No. I, I, I we won't. Do you mind? We won't delve into it because have you have you seen the movie? No. Zodiac is my favorite movie ever. Whoa. I, it's I, it's like I've Zodiac's number one, and I've Godfather. Godfather, Goodfellas uh, is number two. Uh, Zodiac. Um, it's basically about um, how do I even say it. So, so I don't want to give you anything away. Yeah. Uh, it's basically very much a movie about trying to track down Zodiac and find him. Now, I've read I've read a couple of books on Zodiac as well. I find it so interesting. Um, really good cast. It's directed by uh, David Fincher, who did like Fight Club, Fight Club yeah. um, and Se- and Seven. Um, so really, really dark kind of moody movie. But it's basically about uh, an author, a guy who worked in a newspaper, and then also the lead detective tracked with trying to find Zodiac. Um, and Zodiac, I'm not gonna say he invented a lot of tropes, but a lot of things you associate now with serial killers became famous through Zodiac because it was the early '60s in San Francisco. Um, literally, and the reason it's so famous as well is because Summer of Love, Decade of Love in San Francisco, and this guy was San Francisco, really? That's yeah, actually... yeah, fascinating. Man. Really, really, it's like if if you you know th- this week watch Zodiac, come back to me because I, I just know you so well. I know you're gonna love it. It's like a nice two and a half hour movie as well. You know what I mean? You just kind of get really stuck into it. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. But, we, but you're right. Let's let's yeah, let's, I won't. let's let's segue into something else. Um, one thing as well the day we watched uh, the United Arsenal match it was the 1st of November and that just happened to be the centenary of Kevin Barry's death uh, Kevin Barry in terms of Irish history was uh, an 18 year old uh, at the time of essentially the Revolutionary War and he was captured in an ambush on a uh, uh, a British regiment and he was eventually tortured wouldn't give up his contacts and was put to death on the 1st of November in 1920 and the only reason I bring him up is because I hadn't thought of Kevin Barry in quite a long time but Kevin Barry is one of those figures in Irish history that I was fascinated with when I was younger like when I was in uh leave insert history do you know like for the leave insert you have to do some sort of a project uh, yeah, at the yeah, end of it case study. yes so i did mine on kevin barry in college uh i studied history and for the final year project i looked at how uh the two like main newspapers at the time the i think it was like the independent and the the times uh viewed the case in a different way so i like i went through like all the old uh papers at the time and kind of got the different cool. perspectives like yeah. i was so fascinated by by just like it's so hard to believe like like I'm 32 now uh, 
me at 18 being like confronted with that and it was really fascinating because we learned about him at the time we were 18 as well like it was just there was something incredible about it but then as well when you look at like uh terrorist attacks in the last decade and then like as irish people we're so shocked that martyrdom is a thing but then you look back on our history and we glorify that as well like it i just thought that was a really kind of like nearly fascinating dynamic now that i've kind of seen it from a different perspective that's really good i've never even given that thought and it's so so true we, we are we are like i remember it was an alan partridge once saying like that you know the irish were the original terrorists yeah. <laughs> i mean like they were, they were, we, we, there's a part that's so so true but yeah i like I know we talked about Kevin Barry at Kenneth again as well, I think briefly you brought him up. And I hadn't thought about him literally as lo- like in 14 years, like maybe yeah. around that time. Like I really, really hadn't, which is such a shame. And I, and I felt guilty about it. Because um, around, I was the same, and obviously we did the same degree in university, so we both love our history, right? I used to be fascinated by uh, Michael Collins. Michael Collins is the guy I attached to, um, wasn't as much Kevin Barry. Um, but when you think about it, man, when you're 18, you have so much your life to look forward to. And you're, you know, the idea of you not existing or you dying anytime soon is like the furthest thought in your brain. I'm 32, I'm not, not thinking more about it. But as you get older, you definitely start to look at mortality in a, a different way. Kind of like, okay, but, you know, I've, have I got this? Have I got that? That guy's got a bigger house. That guy's doing better in his job. I better catch up. I've only got a certain amount of time. Blah, blah, blah. To be 18 and to be put in a position where you're giving up your your life to protect something that, yes, had a massive impact for sure. I wonder when we were 18, would we have done that? Do you know what I mean? Would I, we have? I, no. I don't think I would have. Like, as in, no. uh, I, I remember like our our history teacher back in like uh, secondary school, Mr. Crow was his name. And he asked the class, he was like, uh, um, lads, out of this, out of this class, like, hands up who would have 100% involved themselves in the rising and like maybe 80% of the people like put their hands up and then he kind of looked around at the rest of us and he was like yeah you're the ones who signed the treaties afterwards and stuff like it's just it's it's (laughs) fucking it's it's such a crazy thing to even imagine putting yourself in that situation and like it's it's incredible that like 100 years later like we're dealing with this completely different thing but the way we have to show our strength and unity, if you want to call it, is by literally doing nothing in the time of a pandemic. Whereas 100 years ago, there was people who were so willing to give their lives for a nation. Like, that doesn't seem to exist anymore in, in Ireland anyway. Like, it exists in, in different parts of the world. But in Ireland, there there doesn't seem to be that feeling anymore of like extreme nationalism and like nationalism once it goes down a certain road is not a good thing but it was just it was such a fascinating time like by far my favorite time in irish history to study absolutely yeah absolutely absolutely and like i i have talked about that before because i've always wondered what and i don't sound like offensive here but yeah ireland now is a place where if, people, if something really bad happened, like, and let's, for example, what happened recently with um, with them voting to keep those records with all those those poor babies that were killed, uh, to keep those names private, if that had happened in the 1920s, they literally would have stormed the GPO. 
if they'd have just done it again. Like people would have been so upset because I, I, I remember when I heard about it and obviously because I'm fire, I was behind. I heard about it on Twitter and I was like, that was put to a vote. Mm. Like where, where's the spine of the country gone? Now I'm someone who left the country so I have no right to comment on it in that way. But there is something that's different now than it was 100 years ago because the idea of, of you know, the British Empire was so big. It was such a scary thing. They've been controlling this country for hundreds of years. And then young lads like him went, no, fuck this. Like, I'm going, let's fight back against this. Let's, 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 let's stand up to people. But I do want, I do would love, I'd love to look into it. What has changed in Ireland as a society that we're not like that anymore at all? Like, you're not, maybe, maybe I'm being too harsh because I do know with the abortion vote and uh, same sex marriage, it was great to see so many people in Dublin um, like protesting and like actually having that kind of the, the pushing back and the fighting for what's right and like a lot of people in Ireland a lot of Irish people I know in, in Canada at the time actually flew home to vote and then flew back again um, but yeah man it's see the interesting thing as well is that you know? like let's say that's a hundred years ago and it feels like such a far time away from where we are now but if you look at the next decade because of things like brexit uh the question of unification has come up more and more like they think there's going to be some sort of a vote i don't know exactly how it works but in the next five years there's going to be some sort of a vote to see if the appetite is there for unification so like this could be a a dramatic decade in irish history as well like when you when you kind of zoom out if that makes sense. Can, can you imagine like talking to someone like Kevin Barry or, or Michael Collins or maybe to a lesser degree in Eamon de Valera and saying, hey, in a hundred years time, everything you've worked for, we're just going to, we're going to vote against it and, and, and join England again. It's, a, it's such a weirder man because again, it's one of those things where you have to be kind of careful how you talk about it. Like, I, oh, I sorry. No and and not, not, yeah. not join England as in like the North would be. Thank yeah, God, yeah, yeah. I was oh, so yeah. <laughs> I was like, how have I not heard about that? The no, no, no. Like, there's, like, there's big talk of, the there's big talk of a unified Ireland. That's the okay, big talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> For a second, do you know um, when you said it as well with such conviction? I was like, fuck it. Have I been reading wrong? Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> I hadn't read it at all. So I was trying to seem like I was educated in the topic. <laughs> what the fuck is going on? That's shocking. That makes way more yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, way yeah. Way more sense. Um, I actually I watched a movie uh, uh, at the weekend called The King. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, it's about um, the English and French. Uh, like I think was it the Nine Years' War? There's so many wars in the Nine Years' War. Um, but man, again, like I, just, I love history so much. I had completely forgotten about all. I got even like Braveheart and Scotland's troubles. So I went down. I went. You went. You were going down a rabbit hole. I see you curious at the weekend. I went down a rabbit hole of like 14th and 15th century Europe for the whole yeah. weekend, which is fucking fascinating as well. Um, but anyway, back back to your point and not Ireland joining England again. That'd be interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, what, what do you think has changed in our society where where we've maybe become not soft, but maybe I don't know. less less rebel like? I don't know. I think I think. Um... I think there's maybe a complacency when life is too easy. Like, have you ever heard that expression? It's like, um, oh, I'll try and get this right now. It's something along the lines of uh, hard men 
make easy times. Easy times make soft men. Soft men make hard times. Hard times make hard men. So there's the, this nearly ebb and flow of history where, like, let's say if you look at our revolutionary heroes, if you want to call them, they created the the groundwork for what modern Ireland is. And in our lifetime, we've never had to even think about the fact that you might get involved in a struggle. Like, Ireland's largely neutral. Like, I... I was in the reserves for a couple of years, but I entered the reserves with the knowledge that there was no way I was ever yeah. going to get involved in a conflict. Um, one thing as well that I, I've thought more and more about is the fact that like for thousands of years, um, people, particularly men, there would be like a rite of passage or a, a trial by fire to bring you into manhood if that makes sense, where you have to do some sort of a task that is pass or fail. And if you get through it, you're into adulthood. But for us, there's no, like I, I was trying to kind of think about it in, in my life. Like the, the first time where I felt a little bit grown up was when I, when I left home. Like that was the first time where you, you're, it's, it's up to you. You don't really have the fallback. It's, there's more responsibility. And then you have to think a little bit more about, okay, what's next and what how do i kind of navigate this world without my parents but but that's a choice there's no there's no point in your life where you can say okay now i'm an adult or now i'm a man and i think i think for a lot of men that confuses us as well like because like you do you ever feel like a grown-up that's such a tough one to unpack because my thing is you could easily spin that and say is that not a good thing is it not a good thing now that you don't have to go through a passage to suddenly say you're a man or you're a grown-up or you're whatever? Um, I don't know how you feel. I don't really feel an adult or a grown-up. You know, I mean, I don't. I don't know if I feel like a child either. I feel very, I'm a very independent person for sure. But man, like, you know, if I go back to kids again, if I had, to have a kid tomorrow, geez, that would be that would be tough. Like, I don't know. Am I ready for that? So I think maybe. And I don't mean to to single out people who maybe don't have kids or don't want to have kids or can't have kids. I think ha- having a family or starting a family, your own family, maybe that's when you become a grown-up. Maybe when you become you, responsible. You think that, but yeah. you can have a family at 16. Do you know what I mean? It's something that you can do very, very early without the emotional maturity or the... Like your brain doesn't really like your prefrontal cortex doesn't fully form till you're like 25. Do you know what I mean? That's when you kind of feel that little bit more rationality kind of creeping into your thought. So like with, with starting a family or like having a kid, you can do that at an age where it's just not the best idea for you. You know what I mean? Whereas, whereas when you've kind of maybe got your ducks more a little bit in a row where you've had the, the opportunities to go out and do your own thing, then I think for a lot of people, that's when you would start to feel like an adult, for men especially, because then the responsibility is there. But you're at a point in your life where hopefully you've gotten yourself into a situation where you feel that this isn't as overwhelming as it would have been 10 years ago. So do you think it it, it kind of comes down to financial independence? Is that kind of maybe when you're providing for yourself, you're providing for your family? Like say you you buy a place, you buy a house or a or something like that is that what you mean or do you mean kind of 
don't know. Like, I don't know. I still want get, I, I want credit for like when I buy groceries and stuff. Like, you know, I want to pat in the back. Like, I don't, I don't know. It's it's such a hard thing to go. All right, this this is when you're an adult, or this is when you feel like a grown up. Like half the time, I just think most people are just pretending, and like I feel in certain situations oh, that I'm completely pretending. Like, do you know when you use but, but adult the- words? Like in in work yeah, yeah. like work speak like where you have to go like oh yeah like I'm trying to think of, do you know those work phrases that everybody uses but let, 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 let's uh, let's unpack this guys let's, yeah uh, let's sit down that's the one in my my work at tech company all everyone says or but yeah, I, I touch base what, what what touch base yeah fuck me Jesus um, <laughs> what what I find interesting about that though Kev is that there's probably people then in both of our lives though that I would look look at and go wow he's a that dude's grown up. Mm. Like that's an adult. Or oh, that person's so immature. When they're gonna kind of get things together and kind of get moving. So I, that's why I think like, yeah, it was obviously a lot easier back in you know 15th century Ireland. You know, you know, to become a man, you had to go out and swing a fucking axe at someone. Yeah, you need to survive back, you know, childbirth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, don't get don't get typhus. You know, you're you're you're, you're flying it like, um, but. I think it's a good thing that doesn't exist anymore. And then, man, we can go down the whole rabbit hole of like, what, what is, you know, what is a man now? Like, what, how would you define a man? How would you, you know, is the definition of a man in 2020 way different than the definition of what a man was when Kevin Barry did? It, it is. Yeah. So like, it goes back That's again very to true like, as well, yeah. So it's, it's hard to, hard to figure out, but like, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't feel like an adult. I, I really don't. I, I feel like I'm 32. I feel like I'm getting older and I'm starting to understand more about myself and what I enjoy more. That's mm. what kind of looked at maybe in COVID, especially during quarantine, I've kind of figured out things I like and things I definitely don't like. But I don't think I'm... Jeez, I still... I still every big decision in my life, I still run it past the, the dad like, or the mom, yeah. just to be sure. Like, you yeah. know, you, you'll give him a call and say, hey, I'm in this situation. What do you think? And, they, and they're in the same fucking boat. Like... Yeah, I'll ring the great grandmother. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's what's so fascinating about it. It's like I think you, you you kind of think, well, they've they've raised me now, and they're still alive uh, in their sixties. They've managed to get through all this bullshit, so they must know what they're talking about. I guarantee, if I set my mum or dad down here, they'd be like hadn't a clue, yeah. had no idea what we were doing. Like I'm so surprised you're still you're still alive, John. You know what I mean? Like you you somehow came out all right. So, but it's a that's a fascinating one too, man. And like, I think it, it, particularly the di- and I think the biggest place where it shapes you is when you're in your teens and what secondary school you go to. Because even secondary schools, I think they shape you so, so massively in Ireland. I think in Ireland, maybe more so than a lot of other places, that you have a different idea of what a man is or what you should mm. be when you leave school. Because that, that, that fascinates me as well. Like I... I, I really enjoyed. I think I, did I call it high school. I did. Fuck, I've been in Canada a while. Secondary school. Uh, I, I think that that shapes you in Ireland in a massive way. Because you yeah. probably had a different idea of what a man was in Clemens than I did in in, in Cope. Yeah, I don't know. I just remember so much, like in Clemens, especially just in insecurity and not wanting to be different. That was the big thing. It's like any any opinion when you were younger, like you were just like, right, I. Yeah, I I don't know if this is the consensus, so I'm gonna shut the fuck up till till the yeah. alpha in this fucking room says something, and then I'll fucking not. It's like fucking prison, yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. Same in comp, just in a different way. In comp, you you could express your opinion, but 
doesn't mean it was right or it doesn't mean it had a, a, a chance to be right. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I don't know, man, like, comp is what it was and what it is, but I, I do find it fascinating that, you know, we're so different than the generation, like, our, our father's generation. Oh, unbelievable. You know I mean? Like, like, the, like uh, the evolution of what a man is from generation to generation is even incredible. Like, and, and I, I don't know if it's ever made as much of a seismic jump as it has from our father's generation to our generation. Probably not, but as well, I think every generation thinks they're special in a sense, you know what I mean? As in, like, you'd have to really, I, I, I think you're right, but yeah, don't you always kind of, like, the younger generation, like, I, I'd say the next generation's thinking the exact same thing, you know what I mean? Oh, it's the same thing with, like, music, right? New, new yeah. kids and their music, like, I, I could never listen to that, or technology, oh, when I get older, I won't be able to figure anything out. But I think the difference is that, like, Maybe I'm speaking for myself, but a lot of people I know, we're not good with our hands. No. We're not handy people. No. Which is, and that, that, that now I, this is a blanket statement for sure, but I'd say like a very high proportion of guys our age couldn't fix something. Now I know I'm hitting on a massive stereotype, stereotype now, I'm trying to be rude or offensive to anyone. Nigel like broke the idea my that, uh, the, the ma- balcony door in March and uh, <laughs> I bought, uh, listen to this fucking shambles, man. Three months, no, no, that's literally an open door. Uh, then I bought a door handle, uh, tried to put it on. Uh, fucking, do you know what it's called when you fuck up the top of the screw so that you can't, uh, you can't unscrew oh, the, it? The threads? Yeah, so I yeah, fucked up that. Fucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I, I had a, a bad handle drilled in for two months, which frustrated the fuck out of me. Because I was like, how did this happen? me up. So Every time I, I see it, then yeah. I had to break that off. Bought another handle, and now I have a door handle, but it doesn't lock. So that's <laughs> that just sums me up in terms of like handy ability. It's so. Uh, <laughs> it's the same as me. I, I put up three uh, uh, three pieces of artwork, and I think they're like uh, they're comic book front pages uh, or covers. I say at the weekend, I haven't sworn or cut an angry <laughs> in fucking years, like. Just the most upset, fucking annoying thing. Couldn't get things straight. I was like, the fucking level that I thought was broken. Yeah. Steffi shouting at me. She's like, no, you fucked that up. It's like 21 inches. Oh, man, you're shouting at her. So, like, <laughs> I, anyway, I just think there, there is definitely a seismic shift. And, like, that's why, you know, I'm going to go way off track here. This is why I like it. The movie Wally. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Wally. The robot? But it, it, it's, yeah, exactly. It's a trash compactor robot. It's a Disney movie, right? Yeah. But it looks at human beings. I think it's in the year. Like 2200 something like that where humans basically have evolved to a point where civilization is so advanced and the idea of of uh, war and things like that is such a, a far gone thing now that all humans look the exact same we're all these fat overweight slobs who you know aren't can't do things for ourselves there's always a way to pay for something to, to kind of fix it or get it done um and, and that's why i think maybe that's a part of that i hope that's different like you know Maybe when my dad was growing up, when he hit 18, 19, went out and found a job, you know, something went wrong at the house, he had to fix it. Yeah. Because he probably didn't have the money to call up a guy to come over and, and do it. But now we just, things are so much easier and everything's an app. We just call a laptop. Oh, man. The, the rate I, of technological I, change I, I, is incredible. Like, uh, when my parents moved to Limerick, uh, one of the selling points of my dad's job was that they'd put a phone in the house in the 80s. Do you know what I mean? Like that that's, is just yeah, yeah, that's 
That's huge, like, yeah, all, like. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I know it's, it's, yeah, it's one of those things, man. I'd love to see, like, I am so fascinated to grow up and get older and see where we're all going to be when we're our parents' age, like, you know what I mean? It's just going to be, because then, uh, I don't know, man, the music, I already hate the music already. I, you know, there's parts of, you know, I don't really understand TikTok that much. But as well, um, I prefer, you know like, our parents' music. Do you know what I mean? Like, I was always kind of like an older head with music, I think. True. That's fair, yeah. And probably probably the same with movies. A lot of my favorite movies came out when I was either not born yeah, like if you or were, very, what's, very young. What would be your ballpark top five, like, movies? Ballpark? Well, I already said two of them, so we'll stick with that. Goodfellas, in no order now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goodfellas. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Goodfellas, Zodiac, Forrest Gump. Love that movie. Um, I have a, a really, really big soft spot for Blade Runner, uh, right. the first one. I guess it's an absolutely amazing movie. And then fifth, um, I'm trying to think of something. Question. I'd say fifth, probably be, yeah, There Will Be Blood. There Will bit, Be Blood. Uh, wow, yeah, that's, I think that, I think like, that's one of the best. I like, it could be one of the best, up to one of the best movies of our lifetime. I think. So yeah, far. like the 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 earliest movie you named there was basically like what the eighties. Man, there would be blood. Is that Paul Thomas Anderson? Oh, Paul Thomas yeah, PTA, Anderson? yeah, chosen, yeah, unbelievable movie. I um, I'm a huge fan of him. Yeah, beautiful, like like what an incredible like uh, what's his name in it? Um, yeah, the main main character. Daniel Lewis. Um, oh, uh, Daniel Daniel Plainview. I'm an oil man. It's just yeah, Daniel masterful. Yeah. Oh, my milkshake drinks. That, your milkshake. That scene, uh, not that scene, the one, um, you know, where he's getting baptized and he's like, I've abandoned my child. Abandoned I've abandoned my, my child. child. Abandoned I've abandoned my, my boy. boy. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> Powerful. <laughs> and, it's just, and it's just such a. It's a movie that's just like it's just a full character study of this guy who becomes an oil baron and just kind of again, like you were talking about the corporate idea of maybe being a bit evil, zero empathy, even for his own son, his own family, just wants to you know make as much money as he can. And then what does he become like? Just comes like an absolute shell of a dude, like, yeah. but I think it's I think it's what I think it's Daniel Lewis's best performance ever because he just becomes that guy, like, yeah. Daniel Plainview now to me is. Oh, but yeah, I, that might be. I don't know if it'd be number one, but it'd be up, up to the there. top for sure. Uh, for me, it's Good, yeah. Bad, and the Ugly, and uh, that movie, uh, There Will Be Blood, at the moment are like top two. They're, uh, they're, they're so good, different. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is incredible. The uh, Good, the Bad, the I, I, I know they're not really a trilogy. People like you know people talk about like, the best trilogy of all time. You know, uh, Lord of the Rings or whatever else. Man, it's like Fistful of Dollars. A fistful more. Is that what it's called? A fistful uh, more? For a few dollars more? Or for, or a few for a few dollars, dollars more. more. No, a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more. Good, bad, and ugly. I think that's it. That's unbelievable trilogy. Yeah. Like, it, it, I, I, oh man, I only watched, um, I watched uh, very recently, Once Upon a Time, have you ever seen that? Is that so Great. early on? Like, certain, as well, yeah. And it's got like a bunch of kind of more famous actors, kind of more Western actors, like Charles Bronson's in it. Um, James Cagney, I think, still doesn't hold a torch to the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like the good, the bad, and the ugly from the soundtrack 
to the cinematography to Clint Eastwood, it's it's unbelievable. That scene I, at the I, end as be... well is just masterful in terms of success. It's iconic. Uh, absolutely iconic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely iconic. Oh, fuck it. No, I'll definitely have to watch Zodiac anyway because you've recommended it and I'll report back on that. Um, I think you'll, you'll adore it. Before we finish, man, you like you mentioned there that you've gotten into meditation. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Like, what's what's your process, or when you say meditation, what do you mean? Um, yeah, I got, I got into it. Um, uh, I'd like to say the height of COVID. I don't know what that means, but like you know, kind of the start of the summer where it looked like lockdown was really, really coming. Work was crazy, crazy busy. Um, I knew I wasn't going to be able to get home. Um, couldn't fly family member got sick as well um i was just really really finding things very very stressful and, and kind of tough overwhelming um, like and yeah like genuinely i was because like you know I, I i was working remotely on my company's remote anyway right so I, I still find it really hard to suddenly close the laptop and i'm still kind of at work do you know what i mean so i wasn't really kind of finding a way especially because we stay inside all the time of separating all of that from who i actually was and like how I was actually feeling. So I kind of started to explore different types of meditation. I have to put my hand up. Say up until that point, I thought meditation was really fucking dumb. Uh, like if I've had people tell me like, oh, I do this, I use that app, or I, I'm really happy if you thought it was really, really cool, but I would absolutely think, no, man, that, none of that stuff for me. Like at all, very, almost against, not against it, but just like, I'm never going to try that, not a hope. Um, and then I kind of, I flirted a little bit with the idea of uh, CBT, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, bought a really, really cool book about how you can kind of, even in very high stress situations, it's really how you interpret your own thoughts. That's how, you know, how it affects you emotionally. I found that fascinating. Again, like you, rabbit hole with that. Um, and then eventually just discovered Headspace. And this is not an ad for Headspace, the app. Um, but man, like if I don't do a minimum of 10 minutes of meditation now, you know, a day, I feel sick and I've missed out. I feel almost different. I feel like stress coming back. You're a different person, um, aren't you? It's mad, man. It's like, I didn't think it was going to have this big an effect on who I am. Um, but I genuinely feel like I'm a bit of a different personality than I was back in like June or July. Like, um, For me, it's the idea of, I, I, I was never, so, at first I had lots of problems with sleep. So that was a, a big thing I had. I always had a problem with running thoughts or racing thoughts, um, where the reason I can't fall asleep is because I'm thinking of stuff from 1994, which is why did I say that? What, like you know, a thought like, pops I, into your head and it just, it won't leave it and you just keep overanalyzing and overanalyzing, what did the other person think and what did I think? Exactly. And, right. Yeah, imagine things that I probably were just completely not true, probably. Um, and then I found certain things fed into that, like social media. Um, you know, maybe I've had an argument with a friend that day or something happened at work. Um, the time I seem to to take that on and figure it out is when I'm getting into bed because I've, I don't have anything to distract me. The lights are off. I'm in my own head. Um, so I had really, really bad, like I, I got diagnosed with insomnia. I wasn't sleeping on sleeping tablets, all this kind of crazy stuff. And the fascinating thing to me, I say today, it's not a single person recommended meditation to me, by the way, which is so, so odd. Um, now we're what, November? I can't remember the last time I had a bad night's sleep. I like, I've, I, I, it's man, I, I, I. So do you do it I, just you know, before bed? Is that what you mean? Or is that your time? Or do you do it in the morning? Or I, I used to, used to do it before bed. And then 
it just so happened that a few times I, it was recommended to me, well, why don't you just try it earlier in the day? Like to, to build up that tool. Because otherwise you would rely on it. Might be a day where I don't get to meditate just before bed. Suddenly I'm not going to sleep. Um, so I do it any time of the day. But what it does is it just gives me that 10, literally 10 to 12 minutes of where I literally train my mind to kind of not think very in-depth thoughts. And I just kind of have pure silence and kind of focus on that. Um, and I've just been able to build up, and that sounds so dumb, but it's literally what it is. I've had to train my mind over the last like four or five months to be able to not have these racing thoughts. Now, I'm not, I'm not like ignoring them. That's not what you do. But you kind of, you let them into your brain. You kind of say, look, yeah, that happened. But yeah. that's life, man. Like, that, that, that happened for a reason. Don't go off on a tangent now in your head where you kind of say, oh, it happened because of this or that. Or I bet you they're at home talking about me in that way. Do you know what I mean? You kind of... It's like, don't the, take the, it the too racing. seriously. It's nearly like the idea of... Imagine that you're sitting on a bench and thoughts will walk past you like people in a park, but don't fucking fixate on one person. That, that, that's it. That, that's it. It's a, like ships, they always, you know, pass each other, passing ships is kind of the, the, the metaphor they use a lot. Um, and I, th- and I, I was just so kind of uh, skeptical about it. I was like, this is so silly. I felt really dumb for the first probably two weeks with my headphones in, sitting in a chair, doing breathing exercises and listening to this person who had a really annoying uh, British accent. That was just like, it was just bothering me. <laughs> I couldn't get into it. And then one day it just kind of clicked. Yeah. Like one day I was just like, God, I felt, like, I remember opening my eyes after doing about a 10 minute session, just feeling like crazy relaxed. Like, just like, oh, wow, I, I actually felt that was very beneficial. And because especially when you start off doing meditation, you get distracted very easily. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're, something pops into your brain and then you're like, oh no, no, get that thought out. It's like, no, well, that's a thought in itself. Just tell the thought to not be there. Um, or you're picking up your phone or there's something that happens in the house and it distracts you. Or you so think you kind of you're meditating that and that's, it's just not what you're doing. Like, it's not. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're being, vi- you're it's actually talking, so, like... you're, you're forcing, yeah, you're forcing, you're forcing yourself to be quiet for 10 minutes. That's not what it is. It's when you kind of, because the great thing about the app was that they come in at the very, very end to tell you, okay, it's done now for the day or whatever, because I was just probably fall asleep. But it's when they come in and you're like, 10 minutes just passed? Like, you're just blown away. You're like, 10 minutes? They're like, wow. Now, I've done longer sessions and I'm trying to work myself up to, I'd love to get to a point where I'm doing 30 minutes a day, which might be, might be quite difficult. And it's not really recommended in many regards. But for me, man, I, it sounds lame, but it, it definitely changed my life in a... In a in health wise, I sleep every night now, and there's I don't have to take anything to make that happen. Yeah. So I, it's life changing in a massive way for me. Like what's amazing as well is like when you're talking about your initial thoughts about meditation, you're like, "Oh, this is all bullshit. It's fucking airy fairy stuff." You don't realize that that's a thought that you're entertaining, and that that's the exact same as everything else. Or like uh, when you're trying to meditate, and then you realize for the first time oh, geez, I was thinking there. You don't realize that that judgment is thought as well. It's, it's so interesting well, yeah. just to be lost in thought all the time. Like, it's so yeah, easy it's, to it's, do. It, it really is. It's fat. It's, man, it, it got me really into just how the brain operates and, and how thoughts operate. Like, I, I went through a period, I think after I'd been meditating for about a month, um, where I started to write stuff down on my phone. Like, if I had a thought that was bad, it's not bad, but like, I overanalyzed my brain and I ran with it. I started to catch them and I'd write them down uh, in like a note on my phone. And then like every now and then I'd look back at them and it'd be something that would be so, so almost pointless. 
and I, it, it got to me and it, like it would upset me or bother me and i have to admit social media again was a big one might be more social media just because we were in quarantine couldn't interact with people mm. but someone would say something to me an offhanded comment and i'd run away with it in my head and then after a few weeks that would happen still but i'd catch it i'd mm. catch it kind of halfway to it leading to something that it, that it wasn't um and like again, even saying the sentence I'm about to say will again sound kind of kooky and silly. Um, but I'm a lot more present in what I'm doing now. Um, which is like that is if I could give anyone advice to get through a, a, a pandemic or just to have a happier life and be in better shape. And it's and it does sound like it's kind of shit. If someone told me I was going to be like, fuck off, what are you selling? Um, like I don't want to listen to your stupid audiobook or whatever. Uh but like honestly being present that is like just being huge like and it's like again it's i don't want to force myself to be it it's like training yourself that just naturally now is the new norm it is it's kind of the way to do it um like even being present for this check as well like with something like meditation it nearly trains you to be less judgmental of the thoughts and just being a little bit more curious when you do see that it is a thought and you're like okay well why why does this pop in and is there any basis to what your what this thought is trying to make me feel and like what's really interesting as well what you said there is that you'd write down some of the the more like the the less positive or the more negative thoughts and like once mm-hmm. you're able to put pen to paper your mind actually perceives things in a different way and it makes much more sense than it does when it's a haze would you find that yeah yeah absolutely the one of the best techniques i was given was changing things from uh, like saying something has to be that way, right? Like perfectionism. Like, so great exa- exactly. So a great example is like um, uh, someone who's like frightened to, uh, to drive a car, right? Um, they're like, okay, I must not, I cannot have an accident in a car. If you do that, you're probably not going to drive a car because you're going you're to get really scared about doing it. You're just not going to get in the car. There's certain things in life that you have to accept might happen, and it's okay for them to happen. It's okay for them to be out of your control. Once you start doing that with your own thoughts, man, it's it, it just it's very liberating. It's very, very kind of like wow, I can I can look at things and be more present with things, and look at things from a much more analytical angle and a much more sensible angle. Um, and you you just find small things during the day, and you're right when you write them down, it just kind of almost you laugh at them when you look at them at the end of the week. Like, I actually, there'd be things I'd be like, why did I even, like, how did that make it to the paper? Like, you know what I mean? Like, how, how did I have a thought that was, and I had to catch that thought? What a silly thought. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's happened to you where, this is, this is a really good example. You text someone, right? You text someone saying, hey, what's up? You know, you want to go hang out Friday night? You text someone on Monday. They don't text back. It's like Tuesday morning. Like, why haven't they texted back? The first thing you think of is, well, they must hate me. I must have done something wrong. I, I have a big issue with that. That's something that I've yeah, tried to yeah, work I, on a lot. Like, and it, it's the 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 fucked up thing is like sometimes I never text. I'm not I'm not punctual with texting people back, so I don't apply my own logic. I'm like yeah. I don't hate that person. I just haven't texted them back yet. But for the for and it's yeah. the opposite way around, especially for certain people that I care a lot about. If I send them a text and it just doesn't go anywhere, I'm just like the initial thought is there. It's like why what's up what's always negative oh, yeah. oh. and it's it's really always negative towards how they view you it's yeah. very rare your first thought is well i hope they're okay you might you might think that but you're not going to say oh they must be busy or they must be taking up their time or 
you even if it's a relationship you've known someone for 10, 20 more years, you forget all about that in a heartbeat and go straight to, well, something must be, I've obviously pissed this person off yeah. or I'm not good enough for them anymore, right? So particularly when you live abroad and a lot of your method of communication is just that way, it can really get to you. And it was starting to get to me a lot. Um, it got to me, because um, I know he won't listen to this because he's, he's gone through it. There's a guy I know back in there called John Jordan, JJ. I hadn't talked for years. Um, I must have sent him like six or seven messages. Like I must have. And he never got back to me. And I, I just one night around the time I was really getting into meditation and that just popped into my head out of nowhere. I was like, God, fucking, why did JJ ever get back to me? Like what's going on there? He got a new phone. Yeah. He got a brand new phone. He's on social media. Just, just like something so simple. Um, but that's the thing as well. It's him. like it, immediately when you said you would text him a certain amount of times, I was like, he switched his number, but it's impossible for you to come to that conclusion when it's you. Exactly, and especially with spread over time or other factors that are brought in there. Um, just the idea of being a reasonable, sensible person. And like when you say it out loud, it sounds so dumb, but I know I can guarantee you 99% of people listening to this right now oh, experience this. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's almost everyone, right? Yeah. And so, again, I keep bringing up social media, but social media is the best way for, for you to experience that because let's say Twitter or Instagram, you put up a photo or a tweet. Like anyone who says... They only put up photos because it's like a personal thing. It's absolute lies. They're putting up hoping for some sort of social approval, validation. So it's what makes you. It's man. I, I watched this. What's it called? The Social Dilemma. A really good Netflix documentary I watched recently. You should really, really watch it. About how you know Google, Facebook, Instagram has actually engineered these apps and engineered the like system to to basically make you want these dopamine hits. So I like, see so you're putting up a great photo. Um, you're telling yourself a, a, a story in your head about why people aren't liking that photo. Yeah. And then you're picking up your phone every 10 minutes, kind of, kind of hoping, oh, that relief of, oh, thank God, Kev liked that photo. It means yeah. Kev doesn't fucking hit my guts. And it's, it's, it's really, and like, that's what meditation did for me. Um, because I didn't know what it got, I, I don't know if I'd gotten out of control, but it got to a point where I wasn't aware of it, which is really scary. Like, if you're actually upset about something every day, because it can get you at any time. Um, it, it just it, 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 can, it can become just a massive issue. It became an issue with me where I couldn't sleep because of it. Mm. So meditation, man. Like I, I'm still not there, as you you know you just said yourself. It's still you're still working on it as well, right? There's still oh, parts absolutely. of it where yeah, where I don't catch myself. And um, you ha you have good and weeks that, and yes. you have bad weeks. Like as in again, it's it's what I was saying. Like it, it ebbs and flows. Like as in you can you can meet yeah. you can meet me after I don't know exercising and, and fucking I don't have a care in the world, but before that one one thing that fucks at me every so often is that uh i i i f i feel in my head that i've so much to do that oh fuck it where do i start once i make a to-do list i'm like why was i worried like once you get it on paper and you can see it it's like that's not it's not an insurmountable thing yeah. it's just stuff that i have to do but when it when it gets too lost in my own thought that's where i i need to pull it back like and again it sounds so silly but the idea of being present man it just takes you out of all of that. So I usually feel best after I meditate. So I now meditate mostly in the morning, especially before work. That's why I try and sneak it in, um, just because I feel I have like a better start to the day. Um, You're you know, less reactive throughout the day as well. Oh, it's dude. Like now, if you're present and stuff, like I, I've had thoughts even this week. Um, uh, so I was hoping to come home at Christmas, um, and so like I, I texted like a friend of mine saying, "Hey, I'm coming back. Like are you around?" He didn't text me back. 
like right away. And that bothered me. It actually did. I was like, I got a bit annoyed with that. Like, why didn't he text me back? Like, why the fuck should he have to text me back? Exactly. His own life. He's doing his own stuff. He could be could be on a call. He could be talking to you. Do you know what I mean? There could be anything going on. But racing thoughts in particular with me, they would just take that as kind of ammo and just run with it. Um, and it just started to, I started to make, you know, incorrect decisions about things. Like I didn't ever act on any of it. But I your perceptions, your perceptions are starting to get skewed and you didn't even realize like if you no. if you were advising me and I was telling you about it, you'd have so much more clarity of thought. But we all like if we could take our own advice, fuck me, like when yeah. when you're yeah, exactly, in it, yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah, it's it's so, so true. You can't you can't see it. And But like to me, meditation just taking 10 minutes. And it sounds weird because all, you're not really the meditation I was doing wasn't like to to counteract that. It was just training my mind to kind of literally just take a breath and go, do you have a, literally a million thoughts a day? Just fucking relax 10 minutes and don't think about anything. Like, just let your mind, like, just take it easy, retrain it to be kind of okay with things coming and going. And, like, I can deal with that later. It's like, your idea of it, the example of a to, to-do list is a great, is a great idea. Mm. Like, a lot of people, when they're in the depths of, like, maybe a bad depression or they really feel the world's against them, if they're to write down a pros and cons list, List for their life, guarantee the pros that way it comes. There's just so much stuff we end up taking for granted because, again, back to what you talk about, you know, the negativity of society or negative negativity bias, um, just kind of kind of gets you a bit. But yeah, meditation, man. I think I think I'll probably do it for the rest of my life now. Yeah, you know, what I mean, some of the things I'm kind of like, ah, all right, I'm bought in. Yeah, and it's it's one of those as well. It's like until like you, you can practice it for a week or two but until you you find that little bit of a benefit then you realize that it's not all bullshit and like it's so important as well that even like let's say you could do 10 minutes meditation for the next couple of days and not feel that you're getting the benefit but even the act of practicing versus the act of never practicing is such a monumental leap forward that it like even even trying to meditate and feeling that you don't get much out of it is far better than just doing nothing at all and just being a prisoner of these running thoughts. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Like, because I, it's weird. So when you do Headspace, you if they have different programs, so you do beginner one to ten, beginner two, one to ten, that kind of thing, right? So I'm on the pro area now, where I'm on like pro level number five. Um, I'm nowhere near uh, where I could get to. Like, I'm still very, very new to meditation. Still, like, like a junior at it. I'm still not very good at it, which sounds like a weird thing to say. But every now and then, you're right. I come out of a 10-minute session of just chilling on the couch after, you know, doing breathing exercises and going, fuck, I didn't get much out of that today. It doesn't mean I stop. It doesn't mean I go, well, this isn't working. Forget this shit. It's like the overall impact it has in your life over a longer period of time, I think, is how meditation can be, can be super helpful. So, but just for me, I've just had such a quick impact for it from it um because if i man, if i talked to you a year ago and you know if you asked about sleep i say geez man i actually don't know if i'll ever be a person that sleeps regularly which is a very sleep is so important to you as a human being so to find something that fix this that's so easy man unreal i, I, I love it this, this yeah actually i am selling headspace go fucking go download headspace <laughs> after you watch zodiac <laughs> um Man, thank you so much for taking the time as always. It's always a pleasure to catch up, Jan. Like in these times, 
human connection is just so fucking fundamental. Like anybody who is listening, fucking get off your phone and fucking have a chat with somebody. It's so refreshing. And whenever I, whenever I finish these and I turn off the laptop, I feel more human or more charged or more nearly at like a, a homeostasis where I just feel better. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we don't talk enough. People don't talk to each other enough mm-hmm. anymore. Do not sound silly, but like, and again, it is. It's a really tough time to make it happen. But like, I I enjoy doing these because I I feel the same. I feel fairly energized coming out of them. Um, because as much as I'd love to say, you know, a text, even a conversation with you over text is enjoyable. It's fun. It's not the same. It's not the same, not the same to actually have an ebb and flow conversation that goes different places. So. That's why I, I call people more now. I have, sorry, I know we're put on on our tangent, but I just start calling people just on the phone. It's just yeah. much easier than shooting. I I do that the whole time. Actually, you do. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. I I need to correct myself. That's the that's the thing that used to catch me. It wasn't text. It's if I called somebody and they didn't answer, I'd be like, "Why don't Why didn't they answer?" Meanwhile, I so rarely will answer my phone. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It's just that I, was, I hit. I hate answering the phone. Yeah. I hate I hate answering the phone when I have to have a conversation that I haven't prepared for. Like if someone just wants to call me and, kind of, and I'm like, oh, hang on now. Like, you don't know, I, I might be doing nothing. Just sitting on the couch, like doing shit all. But it's like, <laughs> I haven't mentally prepared myself to do, yeah, to do uh, this conversation. But yeah, man, you're, if, yeah, just, just listen, just, yeah, give someone a call, like never chat. Yeah. Pleasure as always. Cheers, man. Peace. <laughs>